evening. If you would, turn to the book of John, chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'd like to give my testimony. I like to do that every time I preach someplace for the first time. I think people ought to know the preacher saved. Amen. That just helps. Uh, and so I've, I, I give it all the time at my place. They've heard it over and over again. I like to give it to a fresh crowd. Thing is, I kind of liked his better than I did mine. So I am just may tell his over again. That was... <laughs> but, but I was brought up in a similar type of home in that uh, our home was a home of drinking and cussing. And uh, the only time that I remember hearing the name Jesus growing up was as a curse word. Now, we were brought up at places like the Eagles and the Moose and the BFW and the Bowling Alley. That's where we just about spent all our time. And there were times when Mom and Dad didn't take us to those places, and then we'd be home being babysat by the TV. So I knew nothing about God. That doesn't mean I didn't believe in God. As a matter of fact, every night I would pray a prayer when I would go to sleep, even after I got married and was still lost. I would pray, now lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die. Before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. And then that's as far as they ever prayed on TV, so I didn't know anymore, and that's where I'd stop, right there. I was a rock and roll disc jockey for a while up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then I started, uh, I, I changed stations to a country western station, not because I wanted to listen to country western music, but because I was going to Western Michigan University, and the station I was at was going down, and I still wanted a job. And so... I started working at WAOP Radio in Otsego, Michigan. Another announcer asked me if I'd like to play softball with his church team. Now, I love sports, and so I said, sure, man, I'll play. I mean, if you can hit it, throw it, kick it, whatever, that's what I like to do. And so I said, I'll play. And he says, well, there is one catch. You have to go to church once a week in order to play. I said, well, I don't know about that now. I like to sleep in on Sunday mornings, and I'll go home, talk to my wife, and we'll just see. So we talked about it, and we thought it couldn't hurt us. We didn't know it'd be life-changing. We just thought, you know, it couldn't hurt us to go once a week. And so we started attending First Baptist Church in Otsego, Michigan. We'd go in just for Sunday school and then leave. I mean, that was enough church for me as a lost guy. I didn't really want any more than that. Uh, but it was the first time in my life that I ever heard I was a sinner. I used to think one day I'd stand before God. He'd put his good works on one side of a great scale in heaven and my bad works on the other side, and I was such a good guy, God would just have to let me into heaven. That's what I thought. But that preacher said, no, it doesn't work that way. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and the wages of sin is death. I wasn't going to heaven, but I was going to hell. Now, that troubled me. But you see, I didn't even know who Jesus was. And he preached on Jesus, and he talked about him being the Son of God, coming to this earth to die for my sins at Calvary. See, I didn't know that. And about being the son of God, I didn't know that. I didn't know that he rose from the dead three days later. If you would have asked me at 22 years of age what Easter was about, I would have said the Easter bunny. I mean, to us and in our home, Christmas was about Santa Claus and Easter was about the Easter bunny, which is one of the dumbest stories in the world, some rabbit laying colored eggs and hiding them from kids. That, that didn't... Which, by the way, don't get upset with me, but that's one of the reasons why we don't have Easter egg hunts in any church that I've ever pastored, because as a lost guy, that's what I thought Easter was about. And it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I heard the, so I heard the gospel message, and one Saturday, I'd played four and a half hours. This is in the fall of 1971. I played four and a half hours of country music on a Saturday afternoon, and a preacher had a half-hour radio broadcast from 4.30 to 5 o'clock. And I sat there listening to it. 
the end of the broadcast, he said, if you want to trust Christ as your Savior, you can do it right now, right where you're at. And so there at WAOP radio station in Otsego, Michigan, I bowed my head and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive my sin and to save my soul. But now you got to understand, I was Bible ignorant, man. I mean, I called Job Job and Psalms Palms. And I remember one day the preacher said, turn to 1 John chapter 4. And the first John of my Bible was the book of John, which you're already at, John chapter 4. But where he was reading was, was not what I was reading. And I thought he made a mistake. Well, he didn't make a mistake. I, I was just Bible ignorant. That was it. The pastor of the church we'd been attending that week of all weeks came out to the mobile home where my wife and I lived specifically to win me to Christ. He went through the plan of salvation with me. And at the end of it, he gave an invitation for me to trust Christ. And I said, well, preacher, I already did that. And he gave me that look, you know, like, yeah, right. When was that? And and I told him about it at the radio station. I said, but I don't understand. I, I don't have a clue what I'm supposed to do next. And he said, well, that's because you're a babe in Christ. You've trusted Christ as Savior. Now you need to come and you need to make it public. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. What do I do? And he said, well, you come to church this Sunday. When I give the invitation, you come forward and uh, we'll let everybody know that you've trusted Christ as Savior. So that Sunday, uh, he preached the message. Don't know what it was on, but I went forward at the end. And I took him by the hand, and he took me by the hand, and he said to me, what are you coming forward for? And I thought, you forgot already? Man, alive. I'm <laughs> coming forward to let everybody know. And then the next thing I said to him was, now we need to pray for my wife that she'll get saved. And that Thursday night, he came out to our mobile home again, and in our living room, he won my wife to Christ, and it has been a journey, man. Praise the Lord. Uh, about two and a half years later, God called me to preach. I'd like to tell you that story, but I also want to preach, and so I'm going to do that. But uh, God's just good. Isn't he good? Man, how he changed my life completely. Thank the Lord for the privilege of winning a brother and a sister to Christ and got to win my mama to Christ before she died of cancer. Praise the Lord for that. Going to see you here in heaven. But I didn't get to win my dad to Christ. And that's still a heartbreak. All I can do is try to win somebody else's dad to Jesus. Did you know, I'd say, God, please save my dad. Well, all the time, God wanted to save my dad more than I wanted him saved even. The only thing that kept my dad from, getting, uh, from going to heaven was my dad. I shared the gospel with him several times. He wouldn't take Christ as Savior. But uh, that was his choice. I'll get to see him one more time before he's cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? In John chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Save a little bit of time. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I want to read one verse to get us started. I'll cover that and a number of other portions in the gospel accounts concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I really appreciate Brother Neil's message this morning early on about the emerging church. And their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm concerned that even in our independent Baptist churches, the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of many of our members. Most people have made up a Jesus in their own mind. I want you to notice in verse 27, the scripture says, and upon this came his disciples and noticed this, marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? I want to answer the question tonight, what would Jesus 
really do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I beg you again tonight for the filling of the Holy Ghost of God. Lord, I realize that my ability is only to speak to the ears of men and women, and it's got to go deeper than that to do any good. So I plead the Holy Spirit of God would take truths from the Scripture tonight, drive it home to hearts. And God, may we long to be like Jesus, I pray. And Father, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. Several years ago, I saw somebody wearing one of those bracelets that had the letters on it, WWJD. Now, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought that it was referring to the radio station WJD that was out of Chicago, Illinois. And I thought they just messed up. They put two W's on it. There weren't two W's on that one. Uh, But then I began to see it around more. And so I finally asked somebody, what is that about? And they said, it stands for, what would Jesus do? Now, the basic idea of that is that if you're confronted with some kind of situation where you've got to make a decision, you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And then you do what Jesus would do, and that would be wonderful. Now, that sounds great, but I've discovered over the years, most people don't have a clue what Jesus would do. As a matter of fact, their whole thought pattern goes this way. Well, if I was doing what I really thought was right, that's definitely what Jesus would do, and so I'll do what I think is right. And yet the Bible says there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Well, I did a little web search on that WWJD. I just typed that thing in, and up came several million results. Now, I didn't look at all of those. only looked at a very few of them, as a matter of fact. But, of course, Baptists had it on their sites, Methodists had it on their sites, Episcopalians, Catholics, Church of God, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Emerging Church people. What would Jesus do? Well, obviously, with those kinds of differences, a lot of those folks, if they only had a clue what Jesus would do, they wouldn't be in some of those churches. Amen? Um, But some of them were really interesting. Like, uh, for instance, uh, here was a site, Jesus was a vegetarian. They obviously hadn't read their Bible very well. There was one female evangelist had it on her side. <laughs> I thought when I, when I looked at that, I thought he'd tell her to quit preaching. Amen. There you go. But <laughs> Barney Online had it on his side. Welcome to Hollywood Jesus. They had it on their side. Islamic City in cyberspace had it on their side. Here's one, Satanet. Had it on their side. What would Jesus do? And then this one really floored me. It was atheist for Jesus. Well, I had to click on that one because that, I'm sorry, that just didn't make any sense to me. So I I, I clicked on it and it said that they believed in the teachings of love that Jesus taught and said that when John mentioned 666 in the book of the Revelation, he was talking about the apostle Paul who perverted the teachings of Jesus. Well, obviously, these people didn't have a clue either. But again, most people don't. I read this passage, though, where Jesus sends his disciples to go into the city of Sychar to buy meat. And in an interesting, they had to walk by the same people that that woman later brought out to Jesus, but evidently they said nothing to them about it. They went in for bread, they bought out bread. That was as simple as that. That's all they did. Didn't seem to have time for anything else. 
And I get the impression by what it says in verse 27, when they came and saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, the Bible says they marveled. I think that if someone had said to them when they were in the city, do you think that when you go back to see Jesus, that he could possibly be talking to a Samaritan woman at a well, they would have said absolutely not. Not going to happen. They were covered with some of the prejudice of the Jewish people. Even though they'd been walking with Jesus, their prejudice had gotten in the way about a number of things. Now, perhaps it was because she was a Samaritan. That could be. Perhaps it was because she was a woman. After all, some of the Jewish rabbis had said that it was a waste of time to talk to a woman. Now, I didn't say that. I'm saying the Jewish rabbis said that. So don't give me that look you give your husband when you're upset with him. Amen? <laughs> How are we going to know what Jesus would do? Well, John 13, 8, Jesus said, I am the way. And I'm sorry, that's not what it says. That's John 14, 6. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. I submit to you that if you want to know what Jesus would do, get in the Bible, find out what he did, and what he did is exactly what he would do today because Jesus has not changed. And so what I want to do today, I want to look at some of the things Jesus did. And if we want to be like Jesus, then these are things that we need to be doing too. Now, let me just give you a few. First of all, Jesus would go out of his way to win the lost. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Well, why did he have to go through Samaria? The Jews never went through Samaria. They always went around a different way to get to Galilee, never through Samaria. But there was a woman there that needed Christ. There was a city there that needed Christ. And he must needs go through Samaria. Well, hey, he went out of the way to purchase our salvation. He left heaven's glory to come and die on a cross to pay our sin debt, to be buried and raised three days later from the dead. I would say he went away out of his way for me. And we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to go out of our way to win the lost. You've got those lifestyle evangelism people. Now, I do believe in lifestyle evangelism. If you mean by that, our whole lifestyle ought to be evangelism. We ought to be winning people to Jesus. But this idea, go around, smile at your neighbor and give them the, what was it, a birthday cake or something like that, and they'll come to you and ask, wow, you're smiling all the time. Why is that? Tell me your secret so I can know your secret. They don't do that. As a matter of fact, they watch you very closely. You smile too much. You're in danger of being put away. When David Livingston opened up Central Africa to missions, he had a mission board ask if there was a good road to where he was at. And he said, if you need a good road to come where I'm at, then just stay home. You've got to be willing to go out of your way. And you're not going to be received well in a lot of places. And I thank God that I'm an American, but I want you to know that being an American in some places can get you killed. It can get you stoned. It can get you robbed. It can get you beaten. But hey, that has been the history of the church, hasn't it? That's all right. We're to go out of our way to win the lost to Jesus Christ. It is what we're about. It is still the main thing for the New Testament church. It's not a Christian life center. If you have one, fine. But don't let everything be focused around it. Everything's to be focused around winning the loss to Jesus Christ. 
I was brought up in Sturgis, Michigan. The only people that ever knocked on our door, the only religious people that ever did it were the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Here, they didn't even have the truth of salvation, and yet they were at least interested in us. The Baptists, the non-denominationalists, the Methodists, nobody came by our house to try to win my mom and dad to Christ. No one in Sturgis, Michigan at that time was running a bus. Me and my brothers and my sisters, we were candidates for the bus ministry, but nobody in our city cared. And I think of how many times I rode in that car with my dad drunk, Sweeping across the road, we'd have been killed, and I doubt that one Christian would have shed a tear for us. They didn't even care enough to give us a gospel track. Jesus went out of his way to win the lost. Secondly, he'd tell the truth about their sin. I want you to notice verse 16. Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. But thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. She didn't bring up the subject. He brought up the subject. People need to hear that they are sinners in the sight of a holy God. There are people all around us who are just like I was, thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good fella. I'm better than a lot of people. I'm good to my neighbors. I'm better than some of those church members I know. Passes by, don't care about us at all, and, and we need help, and they never help us. And I, I, Listen, wait just a moment. Jesus confronted her with her sin. Only sinners get saved. You understand that? They have to realize they are sinners. And as sinners, the wages of their sin is death. Now, some people would say, but what about the woman taking adultery in John chapter 8? I mean, after all, Jesus wouldn't condemn her. Oh, you misunderstand that whole passage, and you need to reread it. Because those men, first of all, only brought that woman to Jesus because they were trying to trip him up. Now, Jesus wrote something on the ground, and I've heard all the messages about what Jesus wrote. You say, what did he write, preacher? I don't know. It doesn't say. Now, I have my own speculation about what he may have written. He may have written the Bible verse that said the man was to be brought to. After all, she was taken in the very act. Might have written that. He might have written some of the sins of the men that were standing there. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I guess so we can have a lot of different messages on it. Amen? So, so whatever he wrote, they got under conviction. He said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And they all left. Now, there's the woman. And Jesus said, does no man condemn thee? No man, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn thee. See, right there. Now, wait just a moment. Jesus always kept God's word. It took two witnesses to put a person to death. There weren't two witnesses there. All the witnesses were gone. And even though Jesus knew that she was guilty, he was still only one witness. So he said, neither do I condemn thee, because according to God's word, he couldn't condemn her right there. But he let her know. He said, go thy way and sin no more. He recognized that what she was doing was sin. He didn't soft pedal it. He didn't, he didn't say she had a sexual addiction that she couldn't help. He said, go thy way and sin no more. See, Jesus wasn't embarrassed to bring out the sins of the people. 
The sodomite has sinned against God. The drunkard has sinned against God. I hate the term alcoholic. The term alcoholic assumes that the person doesn't have a choice. They say that it's a disease that can't be helped. Well, if it's a disease, then why is the United States government taxing and making available to everybody a disease? It's supposed to be about healing, not spreading diseases. No, it's not a disease, it's a choice. I tell people this Bible has absolutely no help for an alcoholic, but it does have help for a drunkard. It'll change them completely. It'll give them victory over the wickedness of drunkenness. Jesus would go out of his way to win the lost, and not only that, he would tell the truth about their sin. Let me give you the third thing. He would tell the truth about their religion. I want you to look at the, what goes on from there. Of course, as soon as she gets confronted with her sin, she gets spiritual. It says, it says uh, in verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. How many times that happened when you're soul winning and you get a person down to where they're a sinner and, and suddenly they change the subject about something that makes them sound better than what they are. Now, that's exactly what this woman does. But Jesus, he doesn't miss a beat. Notice she said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Look at this now. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But he said, you worship, you know not what. Now the Samaritan worship was a perverted worship. They had changed in their books of Moses. They had changed the amount of blessing to the amount of cursing and the amount of cursing to the amount of blessing. Uh, they had changed some other things, of course. The perverted worship goes all the way back to the dividing of the two kingdoms, from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom with Jeroboam. And uh, he's being very frank with her. You worship, you know not what. Now, for some reason, we seem to want to tell people when they tell us they're this or that or that, we oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you are. Wait a second. You're glad that they're pagan? You're glad that they're heathen? Wait, they're lost. They need a savior. And their dead religion is not going to save them. Jesus was very frank about this matter of religion and faith and telling the truth. He told the Jews, he said, you're of your father the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He just called them children of the devil. You wonder why they wanted to put him to death? He told the truth about their false religions. Matter of fact, just for fun, turn over to Matthew 23, just a moment. And here's Jesus talking to a bunch of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And notice he says in verse 13, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Then verse 14, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And look what he says about this one. For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made... You make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. He told the truth about their religion, and he didn't tell it in a friendly way. He was adamant about it. He was dead sure about it. My life verse is Psalm 119, 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Now get this. 
and I hate every false way. When Paul is writing back to the Galatians, for some reason, after he'd won these people to Christ, somebody had come in and said, well, that's nice, but now you've got you've to be circumcised according to the law of Moses and keep the law in order to stay saved. And he writes back to them saying, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him. And then he says, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it again in the next verse in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm, you know, the apostle Paul just wouldn't put up with false doctrine about salvation. He didn't say, well, I'm, I'm at least glad you're believing something. No, sir, buddy. We want to believe the truth. And we've got to be willing to point out the lies in what they give. So he'd go out of his way to win the lost. He'd tell the truth about their sin. He'd tell the truth about their false religion. Number four, he'd preach more about hell than he would about heaven. I want you to get a hold of this. There is nobody in the Bible that spoke as much or as graphically about hell as did Jesus Christ. Nobody. Jesus said, of course, in Luke chapter 16, and the rich man also died and was buried in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torment. You see, if Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus that may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I was preaching on that, I think, up in uh, Kentucky, up in northern Kentucky. And a guy came out to me after the message. He said, Preacher, don't you know that's just a parable? I said, Show me. Show me. Show me where Jesus ever said it was a parable. And show me where Jesus ever, in something he called a parable, named one of the individuals in it. This is a true story. But if, even if it was a parable, what was the purpose of a parable? To teach a main spiritual truth. And what's a spiritual truth? You die and go to hell. You burn forever. There's no escape. There's no water. There's no rest. There is only torment. Matthew 25, 41, Then shall they say unto them, On the left hand, depart from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 47, six times he calls it hell, fire, and he says, Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Famous evangelist was asked the question, do you believe there's real flames and fire in hell? And he said, well, I, I, I don't know. He said, I, I just know that it's a place where Jesus isn't, and that would make it hell. And I was shouting at the radio, read your Bible! There's fire in hell! I'm not ashamed to tell you the reason I got saved in 1971 at WAOP radio station was that I did not want to go to hell. Preached at the Sword Conference a few years ago on Is There Hell? I asked a question at the beginning of the service. I said, how many of you here, the motivation, the main motivation behind you getting saved was you didn't want to die and go to hell? And over 80% of the congregation raised their hand. When I got done, I had people coming up to me. One lady came up to me and she said, preacher, we haven't heard a message on hell in our church. As far as I know, they're independent Baptists in our church in over three years. I had one man say to me, Preacher, we have not heard a message on hell in our church in over seven years. What do you think the problem is? Hey, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. People don't fear God. 
And don't fear God because we don't want to present God as a God to be feared. God is love, but until they fear Him, they'll never understand how much He had to love them to put His Son on the cross of Calvary. Jesus told the truth about hell more graphically than anybody else in the Scripture. Let me give you a fifth thing. He'd tell the truth no matter the outcome. I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is the passage where Jesus meets up with the rich young ruler. Now, of course, this boy, he was thinking pretty high of himself. Jesus said, you know the commandments. He says, which? Well, Jesus quotes to him the last six, first of all. The purpose of the law, according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, is the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, the point is, we see the law and we see we're guilty. I mean, even I have to admit that I may have been a good guy before I got saved, but I was a liar. I had lied a bunch of times. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? I was a liar, and I was good at it. Some of you were too no so pious at me. Some of you are still pretty good at it. But this guy said, oh, I've kept all those things from my youth up. And so Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. And instead of quoting uh, the first four, he simply quotes really the great, he puts the greatest of the commandments into practical view. He says, go and sell all that you have, come follow me. Well, how does that put the greatest of the commandments in view? When Jesus was asked that question in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so here's a man who loved his possessions. His possessions were more important than God, more important than Jesus, more important than anything else. That would have been a time for him to fall down and say, oh, God, forgive me. But he doesn't do it. Here's what I want you to notice, though. Look at verse 22. This is in Mark chapter 10. It says, and uh, verse, verse 21, and Jesus beholding him, now underline this, Loved him. Now this is significant. This is powerful. And said unto him, one thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And the Bible says, and he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Let me ask you a question. Didn't Jesus know before he said what he said, that the result would be the young man would leave. He did, didn't he? He's God. He knew. Why did he say it? Because he loved him. Jesus would never compromise the truth to gain a follower. He is the way, the truth and the life. If he's not the truth, then he can't be the Savior. And if he can't be the Savior, then he can't be the Redeemer. Why did he put it so straight to this young man, knowing what the result would be? Because Jesus Christ will say what's right, what's true, no matter the outcome. A similar thing happened in John chapter 6. 
after Jesus said what I believe are some of the most difficult sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's where he talks about, if any man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he hath no life in him, and so on. Well, you got to admit, for a lot of those people, that'd be tough to take. The Bible says some of his disciples murmured at it. And so Jesus answers them back. Well, you get to verse 66, and the scripture says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus would tell the truth no matter the outcome. If I'm going to represent Jesus Christ, then I have a responsibility to preach the truth. As much as I want everybody to get saved, and man, I'd like the church to grow more and faster and all that kind of stuff. If I compromise the truth to get a crowd, then I'm no better than the emerging group. We are truth tellers. The world is full of error, and you don't combat error with error. You combat it with the truth, no matter the outcome. I remember I had a a family visiting one night, and I preached. It was one of those messages where I was just preaching against everything. There's only a couple here evidently that ever do that, but anyway, that's... But... We had that couple, man, they got up, they left, they were angry. And somebody came to me after the service and they said, Pastor, if if you would have known before you said what you said in the message, if you would have known, would you have still said it? And my answer was, I hope so. I've got one person to please when I'm in the pulpit. And that's God. Now, I'm like everybody else. I want everybody to like me. I mean, I think I'm a pretty likable guy. I think I'm in the minority on that. But I I think I'm a pretty likable guy. But when I'm preaching, I've only got one that I want to like me. Because if I please everybody and he's not pleased with me, then I have failed. We're going to be like Jesus Well, first, we've got to be willing to go out of our way to win the lost. We must be willing to tell the truth about their sin and tell the truth about their false religion. Let let me give you you a a sixth thing here. He would rebuke his disciples when they were wrong. Now, this is tough. Man, this is tough. I mean, you'll get called all kinds of names for this one. But go over to Matthew chapter 16. Now, this is the passage where Jesus said to the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say you're Elias, some say you're John the Baptist, and so on. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks right up, and his answer is not just true, it's phenomenal, so that Jesus even comments and compliments him on. He said, we believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, you're right, Peter. And flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But now think about his answer. We believe that thou art the Christ. We'll go down to verse 21 of chapter 16 here. In the book of Matthew, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Verse 21, Then Peter took him and began to... What? What? Who did he just say Jesus was? The Christ, the Son of God. And that is who he is. It was a correct answer. 
Who's he rebuking? And the thing is, he's not ignorant about it. He didn't like what Jesus taught. He must have gone temporarily insane. He rebukes the one he knows to be the Christ. Now, wait a second. What happens next? It says in verse 23, but he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, look at this. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now, just as he commended him publicly for the thing he had said that was true, he rebukes him publicly and even calls him Satan. And I think even more, looking into Jesus' eyes and having him say, you savor not the things that be of God. This man had given up his fishing profession for Jesus. But right then, he wasn't savoring the things that be of God. I've got news for you, preacher. You may be the godliest man in this room right now, but there may be a half hour tomorrow when you're not savoring the things of God so much. And you better be careful what comes out of your mouth during those times you're not savoring the things of God so much. You know, you can have cravings. Man, obviously I didn't get this way by not having cravings. Amen. But when we're talking about spiritual things here, Peter can have the wrong cravings. You're savoring not the things that be of God. Man, we've got to be constantly on our guard. Well, the scripture says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. If we don't keep our heart, we'll lose our heart. So Jesus would rebuke his disciples when they were wrong. He does that on the road to Emmaus. You remember on Resurrection Day, he comes across two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He asked them why they were downcast, and they they wondered how he could be ignorant about what had just taken place. They didn't recognize this was Jesus. And they said in verse 21, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Beginning in verse 25, the Bible says that Jesus took them and rebuked them. He said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. Well, then their eyes were opened, of course, when they sat down with him later. But the point is this. Jesus would rebuke his disciples when they're wrong. And you do that today and Christians are so shallow and so carnal that they run off to another church. Well, but it hurt my feelings. Well, learn from it. Good night. If, you could only, if we only had soldiers that served as long as their feelings didn't get hurt, we'd never have an army. To be in the Lord's army, guess what? There are going to be times when someone's going to have to talk to you sternly because something stupid just came out of your mouth. And you got to be able and willing to listen and take it. Let God work with you. He'd go out of his way to win the loss. He'd tell the truth about their sin. He'd tell the truth about their religion. He'd tell the truth about heaven and hell. He'd rebuke his disciples when they're wrong. And, and I'm going to give you one more. I've got 10 or 12 of things right here. But I want you to get this. He'd make the requirements for discipleship high. Now, I want you to turn over to the book of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I believe, and I'll explain this in a moment, 
I believe that I'm honing in on my greatest failure in the ministry. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, we know those family ties are the closest in the world, but your ties with Jesus have got to be a lot closer. So much so that your love for your family looks like hate because they're not first, he is. And his will is first. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, you say, well, what's your greatest failure in the ministry? I've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to serve God. Jesus didn't. And I'm ashamed. He doesn't stop there. You go to the next verse. He says... And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You get down to verse 33. It says, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. He called for total commitment. Now, he's not talking about salvation here. Salvation is free. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To get saved cost me nothing. It was a gift bought and paid for by God with Jesus on the cross of Calvary shedding his blood for me. Yeah, salvation is free. But discipleship costs. We had a lot of people who want to serve Jesus as long as they can take as many days off as they want to. We got people that want to serve Jesus as long as it's convenient. As long as it doesn't get in the way of other things that I want to do. And we wonder, where have all the disciples gone? Well, maybe, just maybe, we made it too easy for them to serve the Lord. We've tried to fit everything in. We've got to change the times of our services so that it's easier for people to come. And I'll tell you what that leads to eventually. Just like a lot of independent Baptist churches today, if Christmas is on Sunday, they cancel the Sunday night service. Because after all, Christmas is a family day. But Sunday is the Lord's day. And on the Lord's day, the family's to be in the house of God. Bless God on Christmas, when it's Sunday, we have Sunday school, we have Sunday morning church, we have Sunday night church, we have the choir sing, we have choir practice, we run the buses, we're not stopping serving the Lord on His day. What is wrong with people today? Well, you know, it's just, and, and that's why, that's why now there's a bunch of independent Baptist churches on Wednesday night. We're not going to make them drive all the way into church. They can just meet at several houses in the area. Listen, the assembly needs to assemble. And if it's not assembling, it isn't church. But, but people get off late and they're so tired. You don't think Paul was ever tired in his ministry, but I don't find any place where he cut back. So what about being tired? People play football tired. They play baseball tired. They'll stay up to 
12 o'clock at night watching a Monday night football game and they got to get to work early in the morning. They're tired. Yeah, the only thing people can't do if they're tired today is go to church. And they have a little snivel. I can't work in the bus route. I, it amazes me. I, I've, had, I've had Sunday school teachers come to me and say, Preacher, I've only got one today. Should I put the child in another class? Absolutely not. Man, you've got a full hour you can spend with that one child. You pour yourself into that child. What kind of nonsense is this? If you are too important to teach one, you shouldn't be teaching anybody. Get back into another Sunday school class yourself. Jesus would make the requirements for discipleship high. Men of God, are we going to be like Jesus? We've got to be willing to go out of our way to win the lost. You know, I, I, my office is not comfortable. Because I recognize in me, it'd be too easy to sit in there way too much. It's not pretty. Nobody wants to come to my office. Now, some because they feel like they're going to the principal. But others, because my office is not comfortable. I, my staff, they have offices, but I don't want their offices to be comfortable because I didn't hire them to sit in an office. I mean, good night, folks. We're going to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ, going out of our way to win the lost so that we can tell them about their sin, so we can tell them about their false religion, so we can tell them about hell. You're not going to do that in your office. I had somebody leave not too long ago. And they said, well, preacher, it's just so many people. You know, we've been talking. <laughs> oh, my goodness, we've been talking. Oh, my start. <sighs> yeah, and I can name the others that are with you, too. Preacher, maybe, just maybe, there's just too much truth. What? What? Too much truth. They left, by the way. They left. And, of course, the difference between today and back when I began preaching, people didn't have the Internet back then. They used to leave your church and they were gone. Now they leave your church and they're still with your people 24-7 on social media. Spreading their garbage and spreading their lies. And, unfortunately, too many of our Christian people don't have enough Christian character to defriend them, to block them. The Bible says, mark them which cause the visions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. Too much truth. That's like, well, hey, here's a big glass of pure water. Uh, but you know, that's too much purity. Let me put a little cyanide in there. Well, I put four or five drops. I mean, it's an eight-ounce glass, four or five drops of cyanide. You know what that did to that water? Made it poison. You start compromising on truth. You've made your preaching poison. And you've just told your people that what God said, he doesn't mean. You know, there was a guy like that in the Bible. I think it was Genesis chapter 3. You'll not surely die. If they'd listen to the truth, we'd all be in a lot better shape than we are right now. So are we going to be like Jesus? Well, you say, I think we'll reach a lot more if I was like Jesus. I don't know. He got put on a cross. And you might get put on a cross. But it's not about where we end up. 
It's about being like him no matter the results. Jesus went to Samaria one time, and the people came out, and they ran him off. John and James said, hey, should we call fire down? Oh, he said, you don't know what he's picture of. I, I didn't come to kill him. I came to save him. But we get so mad when they talk bad to us. Wait a second, let's get a hold of ourselves. Jesus told the truth, and when they yelled back at him, he took it. As a matter of fact, there were times he wouldn't even answer them. We're going to be like Jesus. We have a, we have a perfect Savior. And if you want to know how to handle a situation, just look and see what Jesus did in a similar situation. And then do it. And they may run you out of town. Or they may acknowledge, ah, we're, we've sinned, preacher. No matter what the result is, you do what Jesus did and you'll be right. And that's all that matters.